Welcome to More to Come, PW Comic World's weekly podcast on comics and graphic novel publishing. Uh, I'm Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor of Publishers Weekly, Editor of uh, PW Comics World, and Editor of The Fanatic, uh, PW's twice-a-month comics and pop culture newsletter. Check us out online at publishersweekly.com slash comics. Uh, okay. Uh, okay, podcast listeners, uh, got a treat for you today. Uh, fascinating book. Uh, if, uh, if the past is prologue, as our, our former professors used to teach her, uh, this book probably has, it really has something interesting to say, uh, really about American entertainment, uh, uh, race, gender, sexual identity. We're gonna talk about it all now. Um, uh, the book is called, uh, and I should say, uh, the, the graphic history. Uh, it's called A Revolution in Three Acts, The Radical Vaudeville of Burt Williams, Eva Tanguay, and Julian El- Elting by David Haidu and John Kerry. Welcome, both of you, to more to come. Thank you. Thanks, I, thanks for having us on, Calvin. Appreciate it. All right. Absolutely. Did I get your name right? Did I say it right? You actually did. So oh. That's the correct Hungarian pronunciation. However... My family says it incorrectly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. You don't want to know what I call it. Okay. We say, we say hey, do. Hey, do. All right. There we go. There but you if go. you were in uh, Budapest, you'd be dead. I'd be, right, I'd be right on on point. Okay, great. Well, that's nice to know uh, when I plan my next trip. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um but hey, let's uh, let's get to the to to your book, and I called it a graphic history. Um, um, but uh, it, you know, it, it, very quickly, I would like to mention, like, I'll be, yeah, I know John obviously as a as a as an East Village artist. I think we were in a show together. Wasn't it yes. Start Again? And probably others too. Yes. Uh, and we have a, a certain figure in our past, uh, Robert Costa, that you know uh, was kind of instrumental in my short-lived art career and your longer-lived one. Uh, <laughs> But uh, David, of course, is the author of uh, uh, a, a number of really kind of important books, Lush Life, a biography of Billy Strayhorn, um, Positively Fourth Street, and, of course, I think a book that certainly we've talked about on this podcast before, um, uh, The Tencent Plague, The Great Comic Book Scare, and How It Changed America. So just to make sure our, our listeners really know a little bit about your background. And of course, uh, uh, John is a, is a painter as well as a cartoonist. Um, but so uh, after that quick introduction, um, uh, I, I'm going to reach out to, I will start with you, David. Uh, can you give us, I mean, much as you do in the book, maybe you can give us a short, uh, capsule, um, uh, understanding of why you did this book. Uh, and, and the three figures that, that, uh. Sure. Sure. I mean, the, the book started with the question that, that we all have when we're little, like, you know, where did I come from? You know, I was raised <laughs> as a Catholic and in the catechism, I remember the first question is who made me? You know, so this question of like, how did we, who am I? How did we get here? How did this all happen is a primal thing, you know, mm-hmm. and it's so I just we John and I decided to apply that to culture, and consider the question of how did we get to where we are in 2021? You know, in this world mm-hmm. that we occupy, the world that we live in now, with so many issues that seem very much of our time swirling around us. And you know, when when we made a deep dive into it and a study into it, we. Learned, and I actually knew some of this through my work and various other projects and other books. That a lot of what we think of as contemporary, a lot of the questions that we're absorbed with in, in, in our time, had their roots a hundred years ago. Hmm. And so we thought, well, let's 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 put that let's 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 dive into that and tell that story. So, you know, we told this, that, that story and we decided to do it together and John could pick up on this because we thought it should be element, it's elementally visual and it needs, mm-hmm. to, needs to be rendered. And it's a story where there's not a lot of documentary, uh, there's, there's not a lot of visual, not a lot of archival materials. You know, not caught on film, not re- not recorded, no no audio recordings. You can't like click a link and watch Weber and Fields or you know. <laughs> so this is a world we'd have to evoke through 
visual imagination mm -hmm. and through renderings, mm -hmm. uh, drawings. Mm -hmm. So that's why we thought this would be great to do together. Now, there is some film, as you mentioned later in the book, but we'll talk about that later, right? There is some small amount of film documentation of these three performances. Yeah. Um, I'm and sorry. John, and John can pick up on this probably too, because he, he worked from this to, to render those. He had a really, I mean, he could talk about this a really interesting visual approach to rendering the film content in the book. There is, uh, Ava Tangway only made one movie uh, mm. called Wild Girl, and it uh, doesn't do justice to her. Mm. She, she had this vivacious, kinetic personality. It was kind of larger than life on stage that then seemed to shrink on camera, and the camera didn't serve her. Right. So, well, we don't, you know what, we don't have to get into that now. I just wanted to bring that up, but I do want to come back to, to that because, I mean, uh, that's a kind of a key moment in the book. I mean, I think the introduction of the cinema the, and the silent films. But so I want to jump first to, to John to just talk about the visual side and how did you two team up? Well, let's see. Uh, I met David when we were both about 20 at NYU. Oh. And even then, uh, I, felt a great affinity with him. We were, we both knew we, we enjoyed early popular culture of the 20th century. We would talk about Buster Keaton films. And then, uh, for a few years, David mentioned that working on a project together. Um, and then he came up with the idea of these three individuals and, uh, he, he said I could do it. And, uh, I didn't believe him, but I, 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 I <laughs> well, if that's interesting too, I mean, have you done a book length work like this before? No, no. Yeah. I, the most I've done, uh, I came out to New Jersey after I knew you in the mm. village, Galvin, uh, to teach. And then I, I got a, uh, editorial cartooning gig for a few years. So I got my feet wet with deadlines and mm. got my feet wet with ink, that is, and, <laughs> and, and, and cartoon materials. And, uh, but never anything, never anything like this. I mean, David, David's the architect of this. He's not only the screenwriter, he's the director of photography and everything else <laughs> in this book. He storyboarded everything. He understands narrative, narrative storytelling in comics, you know, as you know from sure. the book, the, the Tencent Plague. So, so he, he convinced me to give it a go. All right. Well, You're going, David? Let me say something about John to kind of to add, to add on that, why I thought he's ideal for this. It's partly that he knows he's done cartooning put you know mm. 10 years in as a in a weekly editorial cartoonist he could cartoon but he's primarily a, a fine artist and a painter so i i love the idea of a, of a fine artist who is uh, attuned to kind of uh the, the nuance and the poetry uh of fine art working in the in the cartoon medium you know and i i do a lot of jazz and i i, I thought more than once about uh, Miles mm -hmm. Davis working in a mo in modes like you sure. know aband abandoning chromatic harmony you know and abandoning just work in modes but this is somebody who came from Juilliard a new mm -hmm. chromatic new harmony inside and out mm -hmm. so then he could work in this kind of reduced symbolic language and that's what th so there's a parallel to John I mean he know he knows art inside and out and he's a deep fine artist but when he does cartooning it's not because he can't do anything else you know <laughs> he has a dot as an eye it's not because he can't do a real because he can't draw an eye you know it's a choice it's an it's a poetic choice well i think you also i mean he turns out to be in kind of perfect i mean the style uh of your drawings in some ways to me it kind of seems to fit this this look back in time uh that that uh, uh, that really encompasses what the book is about. I hope so. I hope so. I mean, I don't come from a, I really don't come from a superhero kind of hmm. sensibility. Uh, I guess if I had to pick my favorite cartoonist, it'd be Bill Malden. Well, uh, that's, uh, that's an interesting pick. Sure. There's <laughs> <laughs> not just one style, John. Maybe you could speak to that, that issue. Hmm. There are multiple styles in this, and you shift visual mode from section to section and sometimes from page to page in the same way that the book, that the text shifts rhetorical mode. Do you want to speak about that? You have different styles. Well, 
uh, I know in the, in the film, in the film section, I, I wanted to indicate that I was kind of indicating, uh, the artifice of movies. Um, uh, I, I, I don't know if I have perspective on, on the whole thing as far as shifting styles, but I think David once gave me a great book and I keep going back to it. It's Will Eisner's shop talk. Mm-hmm. He talks to Gil Kane and Jack Kirby and all these big shot guys. But there's one, there's one section where he talks, I think, to Gil Kane about cartooning. And he mentions that he came from a Bigfoot background, Bigfoot cartooning, funny mm-hmm. cartooning. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, the, 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 the people that just stick to academic cartooning, he didn't use those words. I'm paraphrasing. You know, seem, I'm paraphrasing a lot. Seemed to him one dimensional. And he said, I come from Bigfoot cartooning and I interject Littlefoot cartooning in it. And he's, and that's the way I think almost with painting, there's a kind of controlled looseness behind it. And I tried to bring that into, or I just naturally do kind of bring that into my, uh, car, the cartooning quality in this where there's a, a little bit of exaggeration in that realism and, and, hopefully a, a fluidity and a looseness that makes it fun. Yeah, well, you seem you seem to have a way of framing all of the scenes um, really well. And then, uh, and then there's certainly areas where I think you bring a psychological cast to it. I know later in the book, I think it is when um, uh, when Burt Williams is kind of in his library. I mean, that just leaps out at me where you really uh, kind of recreate his psychological state in the drawing. Yeah, well, again, again, David, the, the director of photography here, when, when, <laughs> when I read those those pages, you know, he'd give me seven or eight pages and I'd work on, um, work on them for a, f- a few weeks. Uh, when I saw those pages uh, uh, with Williams, in a sense, talking to himself at that moment in his life, uh, when he's feeling like, I mean, he's a very successful black entertainer and he realizes he hasn't come that far mm-hmm. from the time earlier on stage when he was feeling uh, humiliated. He hasn't mm-hmm. come that far. And in that library uh, scene that David set up, uh, yeah, I did try to capture that, mm-hmm. that oppress, oppression that he felt that he just he couldn't get out of it. He just didn't fit in in America, it seemed. That's the way he felt. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, I'm going to, at this point here, I, 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 I want to jump to the beginning of the book, and I'm going to read you something here and, and, and try to use that to kind of segue into it. I mean, you, it, it, there's a section that opens with, what does it be to be American, a woman, a black man, or someone who doesn't quite fit any any category? And then you also go to say that uh, in a time when American life was in the midst of upheaval. Uh, so this story takes place, it sort of begins during the menstrual era, um, most people right. understand that means blackface. Uh, right. I think one thing that this book does, it kind of talks about blackface in a nuanced and multifaceted way uh, as this racist, uh, you know, dehumanization of black people and other people of color, but also as, in fact, this platform in many ways uh, for multicultural talent of all kinds. Uh, so you talk about this period, uh, uh, minstrelsy leading into vaudeville, a, a kind of revolutionary period. Maybe you can like define and talk to our, our listeners a little bit about what was minstrelsy and what was it heading into and how did these, these three performers uh, change everything? You know, when we think of minstrelsy, we think of black minstrelsy, of course, but there were mm-hmm. multiple kinds of, mm-hmm. of minstrelsy. You know, the antebellum minstrelsy, which is a debasing, dehumanizing, horrific, you know, uh, 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 inexcusable, hmm. you know, uh, reduction of like black identity to a demeaning stereotype hmm. is, is, is a, a gravely serious topic that we tried to do justice to in the book. And what, and I want to come back to the other kinds of minstrelsy in a second, but just to build on that briefly, one of the miracles of Burt Williams is the fact that he was both, he was the, the, is that he was able to transcend that stereotype mm. to some to a significant degree mm-hmm. and elevate blackface to a significant degree. That's not to say that it, it wasn't uh, 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 horrible, you know. A, oh a, yes, <laughs> a, tragedy, a tragedy, 
that this man was reduced to work in that form. But at the same time, he elevated the form, and we quote him talking about it by bringing humanity uh, and nuance and subtlety to his performance of a stereotype. He performed a stereotype, but in a, but in a, in a human way that actually was eye-opening to the white public. Mm. You know, uh, So that's an important part of the story. Uh, the other part is that uh, vaudeville took place at a time when uh, the – Immigration during the explosion of immigration uh, in, in the United States and the shift from the of the from the, of the population from the uh, rural population to the cities uh, and when you know immigrants from various countries from Asia uh, Italy you know Greece Ireland mm-hmm. all came to let for, so that men and women could lend their bodies to the making of goods and they're struggling with this what it meant to be in this new world and what it meant to now be American and okay. yet still be Irish or black or Asian mm-hmm. or, or Italian. So in vaudeville, there was the performance of what, what you could call kinds of minstrelsy, many kinds of minstrelsy. There was blackface, there was whiteface, there mm-hmm. were black performers who – there were dozens of mm-hmm. black performers who played in whiteface, uh, yellowface. There were uh, people who did like, uh, parodies of, uh, of of Jewish Americans, including the biggest stars in vaudeville, Weber and, and Fields, uh, par- parodies of Italians who did what they called, forgive the, the word, this is the term of the day, they called WAP acts, you know, uh, <laughs> okay. papers, for, you know, forgive me. Uh, <laughs> uh, lots of ethnic stereotypes that were – kind of teasing by people of that tribe, uh, ridicule from people who are not members of that tribe, mm-hmm. and broadly speaking, a critique of the hegemonic culture, the larger culture that reduced these people to stereotypes. So there's like five things going on mm-hmm. at the same time. Five things going on at the same time. There's, there's teasing, there's affection, there's self-parody, and a critique of the larger culture all at once. Mm. So the book deals in, with that. Mm. Yeah. Um, uh, but but does vaudeville, as I read your book, offered something um, a little different in terms of American mass entertainment at the time. Uh, and, and these three now you know the the three people that you profile here they sort of prefigure the issues of our own time. But they, 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 you know, and but they also sort of were leaders in their own time too, in terms of becoming huge stars, right. uh, um, uh, in ways that I guess looking back today you wouldn't, you would hardly think possible. It's hardly, um, it's hardly, it's hardly possible to even like to process. They were all transformative. You know, Ava Tangway changed the way that both when men and women thought of womanhood as a state, like what it meant to be a woman. She was absolutely radical. She was a, a Lady Gaga, even, uh, you know, Madonna of, of her day, highly, you know, independent, sexualized, physically active woman who just rejected all the precepts of Victorian propriety, turned them inside out and upside down. No, that's like, what used to be called the true woman, she utterly rejected and established the ideal of a new woman, independent, fierce, dynamic, equal to a man. And at the same time, Julian Eltink, and he's, I think, I think, John could probably talk about this more too, he's the most fun, I think, to write about and to draw maybe, was the real surprise to us as, you know, the writer and artist of the, of the book, is he's so little known today. Uh, he was a, a female impersonator who was one of the most popular figures in Broadway, the only person to only vaudeville figure to have a Broadway theater named after him, who demonstrated that gender and sexual identity are malleable things, mm-hmm. that they're things in there and to, that can be constructed. You can make yourself a woman by following a set of rules, by doing a set of things. You could choose a gender and, you know, and make yourself that, mm-hmm. you know, radical idea. And John, did you? I think you had. And also, it. you also succeed to just that to sell a vision of femininity, of womanhood. That um, that in, weirdly, obviously, it was a male constructed idea of a sort of feminist yeah. idea. Um, while he did that, while Eva was actually sort of uh, presenting the exact opposite. 
what what was her theme song? Uh, I don't care. Yeah, they're polar opposites. She's he's he's performing in the false front the the Victorian ideal that she is rejecting. Yes. And in one so in one of the and I don't know if I should kind of reveal this, but then they come together. Yes. You <laughs> probably shouldn't reveal this, but they come together and this is this crazy upending of all of this. Yeah. With her, you know, her not looking like you'd expect her to look, him not looking like you'd expect him to look, and doing something you wouldn't expect them to do. And I don't want to reveal any more than that. It's, it's, it's a, a good tease because I because I do think it's interesting in the book that all three of these performers, these you know revolutionary performers, they do sort of interact at various points in their careers. And, and I also just want to make it clear that when we're talking about Burt Williams, I mean, he's the figure that I know the best. I mean, that I, the other two, actually, I really was surprised and, and fascinated by them. I really didn't know anything about uh, uh, Eva Tanguay or uh, Julian Elting. Burt Williams, of course, I did. Uh, his association with the cakewalk, I knew how famous he was. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, and, of course, his, his his role performing in blackface. In, in, in But... Um, uh, I, I sorry, did I interrupt John? John, you were about to get involved. Uh, no, no. I okay. guess uh, <laughs> I, I did have fun with Julian Elting, uh, uh, and 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 his 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 uh, peculiar take not only in trying to 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 coach and and influence uh, women to stay Victorian, but also prop himself up as kind of the he man off stage. Uh, uh, a fascinating character. I, I feel for all of these three characters a great deal. And also, I also feel uh, a great deal of sympathy for uh, Burt Williams' partner. Uh, oh, yes, we should mention, yes. George Walker. And my wife's from Lawrence, Kansas, and George Walker's from Lawrence, Kansas. So I've, 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 uh, I've seen places he's been and saw the house he built for his mother. And read some newspapers there, the local papers about him. Uh, uh, so I think that all, all four of those people are are fascinating. And can you have, can you just give us a little bit of just a little uh, bit of background uh, for each one? Because you know Williams was what born uh, in uh, where was he in the in the West Indies? Yes. Yeah, the West Indies. His grandfather was a Danish consul to the West Indies. And if you listen to recordings of him, he recorded fairly extensively. You can go up on Spotify or Apple Music or YouTube mm -hmm. and hear the recordings he made. He spoke and sang in a, a, a pure a light baritone with a, a hint of an English accent. Mm -hmm. So he, from being uh, a colonial, you know, a Bahaman. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that was, he came up moved to California, attended high school in California, uh, and may or may not have attended some college, uh, and was, you know, a brilliant scholarly person his whole life, and was known for not partying after, uh, after the, after a show, hmm. and returning home to his library. Very book, very bookish person. And there, there, there were a number of stories that we could have used in the book about him. There's another story that's not in the book about uh, the Christmas party after the Follies and the Bert uh, Williams nowhere to be found. And he was found back in his, his dressing room reading Emerson. So <laughs> someone came in and said, well, Bert, what do you mean? And he, and he started talking about Ralph Waldo, you know, Emerson. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, Tangway from Montreal, originally. Her family is from Montreal. Grew up in Massachusetts. And uh, Elting's background is more of a mystery, you know. Like he, you know, he talked, he claimed to have graduated from Harvard, certainly didn't. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he was a fabulist who constructed this image of being like a he-man, man's man, and like somebody who would have played football against Teddy Roosevelt at Harvard. Uh, but uh, that was just as much a construction, of a construction, as his theatrical self. So mm -hmm. the, the, the Elting in a dress on stage was just as artificial as the mm -hmm. so-called private Elting that he 
talked to, he, he talked about to to the press, you know, about being boxing with John L. Sullivan and working on his farm and fixing his car. It was that was also a construction. He's he's really quite uh, fascinating. That's the background of the three of them, and they do come together. We didn't talk about the way that Tangway and George Walker came together. (laughs) You want to pick that up? Me? Uh, Well, let's see. We have a section where uh, George Jessel, we're all old enough to remember probably George Jessel on The Tonight Show. Sure. And as David said, I felt the same way. What did this guy do? What does he do? He was just (laughs) famous as George Jessel. But anyway – it, from David uh, found his uh, – correct me if I'm wrong, David. Uh, he wrote uh, Elegy in Manhattan, uh, a book, and it, it, it hints at the rumors that swirled around George Walker and Ava Tangway. And uh, it's a nice section. Uh, uh, it's written in kind of like uh, Spoon River uh, uh Away, but it's a profile of them and the rumors around their relationship. She, she, she denied it. Yeah. And, but David would find <laughs> these overlapping things in the book, where uh, you know the uh, the the Tangway Elting. Uh, we won't give away the the excitement there, uh, 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 <laughs> activities and theatrical performance. As well as a, a producer who who worked with both Elting and Burt Williams' last show, and as well as uh, the overlapping there mm-hmm. of at least in people's minds of the relationship between George Walker and, and Ava mm-hmm. Tanguay. Yeah, well, you know what? I, I uh, one of the things I want to point out is one of John's drawings, and I, I just found this one uh, very interesting, and also I think this. Uh, this kind of highlights some of the things that you were, were saying, David. And this is a drawing early, early book. In fact, when I, you know, I, uh, for our listeners out there, I, I ran a short excerpt from a revolutionary, uh, uh, revolution in three acts in uh, the fanatic newsletter. But I love this drawing because it really starts off with, uh, you know, a black man looking out over the, the landscape and there's a bunch of signs up and almost all of them are about everything, uh, black people or can't do or won't be allowed to do uh classical music opera theater uh but minstrelsy is the only one that has all races welcome um it, it, so I, uh, you, you seem to talk about in the book about vaudeville as this flawed but really powerful new uh new thing on the american entertainment landscape uh including uh the actual how the shows were uh, you know, the very nature of the shows, the nine acts, they were every day. You know, I think most Americans know the word vaudeville, but they don't really know anything about it. It's just some old timey thing. You want to describe, I mean, what was a vaudeville act like? Well, it was a lot crazier and more unruly than we realize today. Our conception of vaudeville is framed uh, by nostalgia acts that we would see on the Hollywood Palace in the 1960s where the survivors sure. of vaudeville would recreate a little soft shoe and there'd be sure. you know, two, few people in the straw hats and uh, arm garters. You maybe, know, a, maybe the Ed Sullivan show. Right, doing <laughs> a little soft shoe. It's this gauzy, sentimentalized, mm. kind of nostalgic view of old-time entertainment. But in reality, it was much wilder and free. <laughs> nobody was really paying attention. I mean, well, I mean, nobody was paying attention. There, there were no mechanisms of oversight or censorship. Mm-hmm. You know, critics weren't paying attention. The government weren't paying attention. Censors weren't paying attention. It was almost a kind of anything goes environment. It was really kind of free and strange. Uh, and also because it attracted uh, immigrants who didn't necessarily all speak English, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of it, a lot of it was, was, was visual. It was this kind of wild hodgepodge of things. There'd be, there'd be acrobats and uh, dog acts. Somebody would sing a little aria, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a Chinese American would come out and sing in brogue, uh, you know, to, <laughs> right. Uh, a black man would come out uh, in whiteface. Someone, <laughs> it was 
it was crazy. It was crazy. All this, like, but it was also of, enormously popular. Yes, it was. The, it was the birth of popular entertainment mm. in America. Mm. Uh, there, there may have been. There may have never have been a form of entertainment that more people saw, more people, or larger percentage, I should say, of the population experienced. Because the acts would travel around through circuits all around the country, and people, the uh, yeah. So this this wasn't just a New York City phenomenon, because I mean, you talk about. Um, what is it? The, the the Tony Tony Pastor's theater on Fourteenth Street, um, right. uh, the, uh, the, the the what the Dime Museums on the Bowery, right? Uh, as kind of I guess sort of the the, the precursors of the full on vaudeville circuit. But this wasn't just in New York. This happened. The circuit moved out around the country to big cities. I assume. Phenomenon. We have a map. Yes. <laughs> where we show the names of the of the theaters in various cities, and that doesn't represent them all. Only so many could fit, like in the map, and, and look mm -hmm. okay. But artists would go from city to city to city by train, and do the same act. Uh, they travel for a year and do this, take their act around the country, and that would be called a circuit, or you know, we didn't really even call it tours. But it was, would be called the circuit, and the whole world would be exposed to you know these crazy performers doing these wild things. Uh, so we thought that's why we chose to do this visually, and we thought it would be best to do it in, in drawings because you know you could give you could bring that unruliness and that weirdness to life in drawings in a, in a way that it's hard to do with just words. Sure, um, uh, John, you want to add anything to that? I like uh, so the the last we we have a uh, ticket uh, of many acts in the book uh, two sure. page spread and it closes with the uh, the inf information that the closing spot was reserved especially for the chaser and act so bad that it would drive people out of the theater yeah okay because otherwise people would just stay in in right. the, <laughs> just listen look, go to the whole show again right right one ticket you could stay all day. Uh. Right? So people would say they'd bring a, they'd bring a bag lunch and they'd stay all day. So the very last act was designed to be so terrible that people would drive people. <laughs> they out would of get them out of there. I <laughs> love it. And and as you have pointed out earlier, this was a, a this crazy, unruly, wild experiences was created by this incredible influx of every nationality that was scrambling to get into the country. At, right. I guess the turn of this of the century, because we're talking about from what the late nineteenth century into the early twentieth. To the early twenties, to really the rise of, of film. It was it was mm -hmm. film that you know that uh, uh, was the death knoll, vaudeville mm -hmm. uh, probably, and recordings also, recordings, radio, and and film, uh, and sort of never, but never come back. There have been attempts to bring vaudeville back, you know, back <laughs> at this time. So, uh, uh, it doesn't really make sense any anymore. So we were, you know, very excited to just tell a story that has been – some aspects of which have, have been told. Mm -hmm. To zoom in on three people who were working in areas that really prefigure – the 21st century in really powerful ways, exploring racial identity, you know, gender identity, uh, sexual and sexual identity. Mm -hmm. What it meant to be, what it meant to be black, what it meant to be a man, or what it meant to be a woman. So uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and hone in on just a couple of like key moments for me for each of the characters. What can you tell me about the Marshall Hotel? Um, the Marshall Hotel. I was just reading a. a the New Negro recently is in, and the, which I hadn't read before. There's a big section on the Marshall Hotel there. Before the migration of the African American population to Harlem, before uh, Harlem was populated mainly by uh, by African Americans, the largest concentration of uh, black men and women in, in New York was in the uh, in the in the well, first in the Tenderloin District in the, in the around the 30s, and then in the 19 in the 50s around 53rd Street, uh, the West Side. Uh, 
And the Marshall Hotel mm. was the social center of black life mm. on 53rd Street. And it's where Walker and Williams, Walker and Williams made their home base. And it was the place where the literati and leaders of black life gravitated to exchange ideas and influence, share, share creative ideas, share intellectual ideas. Uh, W.E. Du Bois, uh, Paul Lawrence, uh, Dunbar, uh, Will Marion Cook. We go into quite a bit of detail on it. All gravitated to the Marshall. And that was kind of the feeding ground for a wave of black, black creativity. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first all black Broadway shows, the first. Yes, and I'm particularly interested in that. Like, this is where, uh, Williams and Walker created, along with their creative uh-huh. partners, uh, right. and maybe you can talk a little about what Clorindy and Indahomi and, talk a little bit. Indahomi. Uh, Clorindy, the, you know, the first show to be created by all black composers, uh, writers, performers, funded by African Americans for the black and white audience, uh, staged originally outdoors, but on, on, in Broadway. And then Indahomi was the first Broadway show to be, you know, created by, uh, African Americans for, uh, a mixed race, uh, audience. And it dealt with, uh, Subject of uh, dealt with Africa uh, in a way that was partly connected to the back, back to Africa movement, but is sometimes misunderstood as being related to you know, white efforts to send blacks oh. back. Mm-hmm. To where this came from, it really was not at all the idea of this, but it's sometimes misrepresented in, uh, in like historical accounts. Uh, we f- focused on the in the book on Williams and Walker and collaborating with the creators in the making of the of this work and the pride that they took in making it doing a work of black expression uh, and supporting you know sizable cast and crew of black talent mm-hmm. and we we you know and we quote george walker talking about everything we do is for the race we have a payroll of x and he cites the mm-hmm. dollars yeah many people we are supporting but the if you looked though at the titles of the songs and if you heard some of the content you would think of it as being racist by today's standards mm-hmm. it's, is but these were all black produ- productions, uh, kind of the first, uh, ever, uh, it was really, this is really like a, a dazzling moment, uh, in American entertainment history. And by way of Walker and Williams, uh, and gestated at the Marshall Hotel with the other black talent, you know, who gravitated there as, uh, uh, kind of uh, Bloomsbury. It was kind of like <laughs> Black Bloomsbury or the, or the Harlem Renaissance, mm. even before, before. the Harlem mm-hmm. the Harlem Renaissance for like 20 years. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Uh, the doesn't stand anymore. John, how did you you drew, how did you draw it? Because you drew the hotel and you drew the interior. How did you do that? Uh, I I um, I guessed. <laughs> I think there are enough people. I think there are enough people in the in the panels. I really didn't have to work too much on architecture. I made it a popular place. Well, there's there's one. You know, there is there there are a couple of drawings where you kind of uh, oh, oh these are really yeah you show off some you know uh, I guess your imagined uh, vision of what the ho- the front of the hotel might have looked like, but also of course you've got the lobby. And you do have a, a succession of these, like, you know, black, of the, the black intelligentsia. Um, and what I actually like is the, the talking heads that kind of give us a quick rundown on who we're seeing and who we're talking to. So I thought that was a great device. You know, that's a lift. It's a straight lift from Silver Age DC. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Specifically, Carmen Infantino Flash. Oh, there you go. Right? Do you remember he used to? He would always there would be. I remember Carmen hat. Infantino, of course. <laughs> yeah, Infantino Flash, and we, you would see a disembodied head with some texts, and there was a Carmen Infantino technique. 
and then also the way that he used kind of wavy lines to as a visual grammar for a flashback. We picked that up too. Uh, so the, you know if it's a flashback if it has those Carmen Infantino wavy lines around the panel. Well, there you go. I love that you're giving up all your secrets here. Um, yeah. Uh, maybe, uh, you could tell, now I'm gonna jump to Eva. Um, and we mentioned her, uh, as the I Don't Care Girl. Now I believe that was a song as well, but she also became famous for what's the song, My Salome? Yeah. Yeah. Salome, yeah, Salome. So, so Salome, am I saying it right? Yeah, no, no, it's okay. What can so, you What can you tell us about that and the stir that it created? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> uh, Salome is a is a biblical yeah. character. So, uh, so Vaudevillians got away with presenting very kind of racial presentation and sh- sh- displaying the female body, you know, near in a near nude state. By doing the dance of the seven veils, mm. which, which was Salome's signature, yeah. Yeah. and by casting it as a, just you know a historical depiction of the biblical character of Salome, <laughs> so and then you know and then disrobing in a you know salacious, sexy manner, it was a full blown craze. We quote, uh, let's see, I need a second to find the page. Uh, somebody say something else while I think, <laughs> I think about 75 we're, we're at there David the uh, right. I'm looking for it myself and then there's a nice segue at the end of that to go toward uh, there's a, a New York Times quote that said this and this was a cheeky article in the New York Times the Salome Club met last week for the first time membership was limited to 50,000 yes <laughs> Hammerstein will introduce the Salome dance into every opera next season and there's a quote from the baltimore sun saying seldom has a fad especially so questionable one spread with such (laughs) amazing rapidity without a salome it is foolish to attempt to draw people to the places where musical terpsichorean and liquid comfort are served i love that really it's kind of stuffy overwrought language and we and john uh no doubt had uh fun although i know you know Drawing with this level of expertise may not be as much fun as it, as it looks to experience this art. Drawing five women and one man doing Salome dances. And the man, of course, is Burt Williams doing a Salome in drag. That's right, yeah. That's right. You get to go through a whole succession of Salome's. In blackface. So there's Williams in blackface and drag doing Salome. And Julian Elting did Salome too. Can I? I want to point out another series of of John's drawings, also around Eva Tanguay, and these are both informative and hilarious. Uh, and that's the those uh, her the, the, the songs that she would sing, as opposed to the sort of conventional uh, ones. And I and I love this one about what come take a skate with me. Uh, her song, of course, was go as far as you like. Uh, I I guess you can bring your own imagination to that story. But time and time again, you have her going down this with a a sort of state Victorian song of the day, I guess. uh, Because you talk also in the book about uh, the the rise of sheet music and Tin Pan Alley. Uh, Mm -hmm. But, you know, you also talk about, you know, uh, what Anna Kay singing, Just a We're In For You, and Eva Tanguay singing, That's Why They Call Me Tabasco. (laughs) I mean, Uh, I love you know, I love, you know, I sketched, as John mentioned earlier, I did like, uh, uh, I did the breakdowns of storyboards and, you know, pretty rough sketches of this. And if I showed you this, you'd say, okay, that's the design of this page. That's the concept of this page. That's nice. But then John made it, brought all the life to it. And if you look at Elsie Baker, it's just, a, it's a drawing of this Victorian woman saying, I love you truly. And it's just funny. Yeah. It's just, no, it's, it's hilarious. Just, <laughs> Or Billy Murray singing "Come Take a Skate with Me." Just his image alone is just hysterical. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's see. Not we're running out of time. I, I want to touch on a few things more um, uh, quickly. Elting's uh, merchandising. He had his own magazine. What? what I mean, it, 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 
these these performers or performing it, I guess, at the edge of what was, you know, even legally permitted in many cases. Right. But their their mass appeal is still, I find, startling. I mean, he he, you know, at one time apparently was fairly wealthy from his performances. We we made a trip together, I think two days, I guess, uh, to the Lincoln Center Library for the Performing Arts, going through scrapbooks and original materials from the vaudeville era. We tried not to rely on secondary sources and books about vaudeville. Mm-hmm. We went to primary sources, to articles written at the time, and scrapbooks and material and archives at the Lincoln Center Library and other archives all around the country, which thank God you have access to now. We have, one has access to online. But we found copies of the Julian Elting magazine there. <laughs> yeah. And we sat at the table and we're going, what is this? And it was, it's partly kind of like a user's guide to being a woman where he's laying out all the mechanics of constructing yourself as a feminine <laughs> idea, like how to do it. So it's kind of like a user's manual to a car. You know? <laughs> yeah. What did you call it? What do they call female delineators? Yeah, right. <laughs> delineators. So you, you follow all these steps that he's he lays out to you. Just you know, you can maintain your car or your or your bo- your own body, mm-hmm. and you know, and become a woman. And then it's all all the ads in the magazine are for Julian Elting's own merchandise. So the editorial content uh, it. it is supports the ads and the ads are support the editorial content. It's all this just weird soup of, uh, commercial exploitation and nuts and bolts advice for a really radical idea that, you know, the, the gender is a construct. You know, people walked, men walked away, walk out of the theaters with a crush on Julian Elting. Yeah. <laughs> now, and can you imagine, like, so men know that he's a man. Mm-hmm. What is it? You know, you go to the theater, you know he's a man. Because you always, always revealed himself to be a man at the end. But you walk out having just experienced an attraction to someone who you know is a man. Mm-hmm. So the man comes out with, like, his whole, like, sexual impulses turned inside out. And the woman comes away thinking, well... I guess I could be whoever I want. If he could be, a, you know, he could be a, uh, make himself beautiful, then I can too. Just, just really crazy. Well, and, we're, we're we're running out of time, and uh, I, I think at, this is at this point. I do want you to talk, and maybe you can both join in here about, you know, the, you know the, the the decline of vaudeville, the, you know, the, the forces that you know were were killing it, even though other forces, you know, years before. 50 years before brought it to life, uh, you know, new tastes, new technologies. Uh, and it, it apparently was the beginning of the, the silent film era. Yeah. If you don't mind, I, I say one thing about this. I'm not, I'm going to be, uh, I'm not going to be too specific because I don't want to ruin the draw, you know, ruin the story for people. Who haven't okay. Read. Sure. But in a way, uh, Elting and Tangway, uh, brought about, their uh, own decline. Uh, Tangway was outdated by people who were influenced by her and took her aesthetic and her idea idea to a new level. Mm. And the same thing with, with Elting. There was a craze for female impersonators. It's largely forgotten today. At the time, it was called the pansy craze. Mm-hmm. Full bore craze for female impersonators who did what impersonation closer to what we think of today classic drag full mm. of irony and parody and cheekiness and mm. humor uh so and they made julian elting look like a relic of the victorian era mm-hmm. so, you know they they both kind of enacted you know their own uh decline hmm. uh, not so much not so much but I see. It's a little more complicated. I see. I see. And and uh, and and Williams um, 
well, you know, maybe, maybe we could end it there. You know, I mean, I was, I was about to kind of say that, I mean, it's just a sort of profoundly sad moment at the end of the book. I guess I'd be equity actor strike. Um, uh, that was sort of really, it's, it's, it's really moving and powerful and kind of really kind of delineates what the, the fix <laughs> Williams found himself into as this, you know, really uh, lionized performer who didn't seem to have a place anywhere in the world. Yeah, the, uh, the when David first uh, told me about the project, like you, I didn't know, uh, I didn't know Tangway or, or Elting, uh, but I knew that, I knew about Williams and I knew that, that the Museum of Modern Art had, had recently found that uh, some film footage of him from that unfinished movie. But I knew that quote by W.C. Fields that's in the book that Burt Williams was the funniest man I ever saw and the saddest man I ever knew. Mm. And uh, and uh, we tried to capture why mm. in, the, in that section where he's not told about the actor, actor's equity strike. And he feels like uh, after all that success, uh, he feels like he's kind of uh, alone, really alone. Yeah. Well, uh, look, I, you know, I think we're going to – we'll draw to a close there, but it's really a wonderful book. Uh, um, you know, if you go to publishersweekly.com slash comics, you can see a short excerpt. Um, uh, the book itself, A Revolution in Three Acts, The Radical Vaudeville of Burt Williams, Eva Tanguay, and Julian Elting, published by Columbia University Press, I believe, in September. So it's it's up. I bet if you went out to a store today, you could probably find it. Um, uh, by David uh, Haydu and John uh, John Kerry. When I when I'm in um, another country, I may pronounce it differently. Um, I, you know what? I'd love to. I, I want to uh, just end this with uh, this sentence, also at the very end of the book, where you say people went to see Burt Williams. And George Walker and Eva Tanguay and, and Julian Elting got tickets to another world. Uh, I think that's a, 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 a fascinating way to put it. I think that if pop culture works that way even to this very day. Oh, thanks so much, Thomas. Really, it was a lot of fun to talk to you and stimulating. So Great thanks. talking to you. Great, great to get a chance to meet you again. Uh, John, uh, I usually only get to talk to you on Facebook, so this is terrific. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, good luck to your Yankees, and thanks yeah. very much for profiling us. We really yeah. appreciate it, Calvin. My, my sports affiliations always seem to creep into these podcasts. Anyway, there you go. <laughs> go Yanks. Great to talk to you, and thanks so much. Take care. Thank you.